Welcome to the Seven Things EMS Podcast, a continuing education offering of Limmer Education. Seven Things EMS Podcast is designed to give you what you need to succeed in EMS. It's conversational, informational, and without the fluff. And it's another episode of the Seven Things EMS podcast. This episode, Seven Things Learning. This is going to be an episode for both students and educators to tune up how we learn, how we teach, maybe even realizing how those two things come together. My name is Dan Limmer, your host. And I always say I'm happy to, to be here with somebody, but uh, Dan Bates and I go way back, not only in teaching in EMS in Maine, but also in recording things. Dan is the Director of Emergency Preparedness, Response, and Injury Prevention for the Vermont Department of Health. It's a great title. It also includes EMS, uh, which is uh, where Dan comes from. He's probably one of the most interesting people to talk to because you get to go out with Dan and he says, you know, I just read this. So welcome, Dan. Well, thanks, Dan. And uh, uh, it's always a pleasure to hang out with you and I feel the same way. It's always great to I draw a lot of inspiration anytime we have an opportunity to hang out together and chat. Well, here we are. We can do it uh, online, and that's certainly a good thing. So our, our mantra is to get right to the learning. That's what this podcast is about. And I love the ones that you've, that you've created, uh, especially this first one. You say every EMS educator should apologize. <laughs> tell, me, tell me why you say that. Well, perhaps perhaps I'm being a, a little bit uh, overzealous in that. I, I think a lot of us EMS educators should apologize. And the reason I say that is because uh, I've really come to believe um, in doing a lot of reading about the science of learning that we have taught people the wrong way and used incorrect methodologies for, for generations of EMS classes. And I say that mostly meaning me. Um, and, and when I look back at the lessons that I taught my students and, and how they prepared for tests and how they got ready to take the National Registry exam, what I realize as I as look at it is, boy, was I wrong. And uh, I, I, I went to, uh, I spent the last two years in the State Emergency Operations Center doing COVID, and I finally got a chance to take a vacation last summer and went to Jamaica and uh, ended up just deep diving educational topics for some reason I don't really psychologically understand, but I grabbed it's a couple you, it's you. Of, it's uh, you. of really great books. Um, I, I read two books uh, um, and, and actually more, but uh, these were the two that really stuck out. I read a book called Uncommon Sense Teaching, Practical Insights in Brain Science to Help Students Learn. And then the other one was Powerful Teaching, Unleash the Science of Learning. Um, and uh, the, the, it, both of those texts, both of those books really talked about um, the modern insight into how the brain works and how the science of learning works and, and what, what research really tells us about how people process information and turn it from just sort of an experience to lasting memory into, and, into information that they can recall and use. And uh, <laughs> as I went through it, I said, boy, totally different than what I expected and totally against the very routine processes that I had learned as a student and then that I had taken into my role as an EMS educator and, 
you know, the whole process of, of lecture and reading and rereading and studying notes and all of that stuff really just goes contrary to what the most modern science tells us about how the best way to prepare students is. And we're going to get into those things, I'm guessing, and other parts throughout this, exactly sure. what those are. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, looks like we have some, some really uh, great stuff ahead. I'll also add that in the show notes, Dan has kindly given us references to all the books that he mentioned. So when you go to the show notes, um, you'll have all this information. So uh, take time to listen now um, and to do that. Do you want to throw an example out before I go on to number two? Can you give me a light bulb moment from some of those books or one thing that makes you just, that's going to just kind of tune us up for the rest of today? Sure. The light bulb moment I had. So, so I, I used to be very good at, at getting people through the national register exam. I fancied myself as a person who really understood the registry. I had done item writing. I had done work with the registry on practice evaluations, you know, things that, that I felt like gave me a good level of preparation to get my students through and had good success getting my students through the registry. So um, when I began talking about this, though, uh, for example, I used to have my students go back and, and, and take their notes and, and basically reread over their notes in multiple occasions. Now, that's partially right. I got the repetition of it right. But when they were just sort of doing this passive reading and, and passive um, repetition of, of facts, what I was missing uh, from the science of learning was how to imprint it and, and how to make that retrieval practice a more active process to engage the linkages. And we're going to talk about linkages in just a second here that really make that learning lasting and unique. And um, what I needed to do was something entirely different. What I needed is a much different approach to that registry exam. And, and that's what I would do today. Well, let's go to number two then. Yeah. Because we talk about, the next one is about linkages, but I see in our list here that you're covering a lot of these things uh, number two, learning is about linkages. Yeah. Um, so th this all started for me, Dan. I read an article. I was just kicking around the internet one day, and I don't even remember how I got to this place, but it was an article about a guy named Donald Hebb, and he wrote a book in 1949 called The Organization of Behavior. And Hebb basically outlined this idea, this, this theory of learning that said that we we imprint learning by organizing neurons in our brain. And we've got 86, million, 86 billion neurons in our brain. And Hebb suggested that there's really three stages of learning. There's an encoding stage, a storage stage, and a retrieval stage. In the encoding stage, what we're talking about is basically just associating certain neurons with sensory input. You know, So uh, I see a cat and uh, activates these certain neurons in my brain. The storage side begins to link neurons together so that when I see a cat again, I can say, oh, that's a cat. And they do that by extending these little tiny dendritic spines out and connecting. They don't exactly connect together, but they link together uh, uh, neurochemically. Uh, and so that when that happens again, when I see the sensory input of a cat or I see a picture of a cat or uh, theoretically I, I hear a cat meow, I can associate that with previous learning that I had. And then the final stage is the retrieval stage, which enables, which takes those linkages that I've created, those, those patterns of neurons that have accessed together. Um, it allows me to pull them out from the great big giant storage space. And, you know, the challenge of that is we have this enormous capacity. So think of it like, you know, a million volume library. It's one thing to have a book in there. It's another thing to be able to actually go into that library and find the book and get it out in a, in a timely fashion. 
And that's what we think about, you know, when we talk about meaningful and lasting learning, it's not enough just to imprint it in there once or encode it once. It's about making it in a, it's about placing it into a situation where you can use that information readily. And especially in our world of EMS, where, you know, some of this information has to come out under really difficult circumstances. It has to come out in time sensitive situations. Oftentimes we don't have the, the luxury of being able to say, well, let me just think about that for a few minutes here. Um, it's got to be instantaneously available to us. And that means we've got to get it to a place of a, a very special level of memory that we talk about. Now, the key thing and, and, and the point that I really want to make today is that we develop these linkages through use, right? And it's the, the whole notion of active learning. Now, I'm going to talk about why I think active learning is a bit of a cliche in a minute, but the notion of, uh, if you think of your brain sort of like a jungle, right? We've got to hack our way through it. And um, to get through that jungle, I've got to carve a pathway through. I've got to get to a place where I can uh, build a path. Now, the more times I go through that path, the more times I clear it out, the more distinct that pathway is going to be. And that's the, the very key to all of the rest of the stuff that we're going to talk about. Those linkages improve with use. Those linkages improve by by recalling them, by retrieving them over and over again. And the more times that I can do that, the more clear that path is going to be, the more, the more simple it is going to be to use that information, to engage that information when I need it the most. And that's the core piece that we need to be thinking about here. All right. You know, I, I have questions. I'm sure our listeners have questions, but I can see how you've built these to move one after the other. So I'm just going to go on um, and, and continue in these um, you know, I've known a lot of your teaching, a lot of things you talk about, and I see um, resuscitation being something like that, one of those high-pressure things, you know, recalling things, even the pharmacology and all the things that have to come out that we have to integrate during a code and the stress that we're under. It almost seems like you'd really want to have the jungle pretty well hacked down and, and ready to be able to do something like that. Resuscitation is a great example of this, Dan. You know, um, if you think about how we traditionally have taught this kind of stuff in, in the world of EMS for many, many years, and by the way, guilty as charged, right? I, I've taught this stuff this way. Think about like a, an example, a great example is neonate resuscitation. Uh, when you go through paramedic school or EMT class, you probably have one day of, of pediatrics, maybe you have one day of neonate class. And you, uh, you get this algorithm that you put out. The National, uh, the uh, American Heart Association oftentimes will have the, the, na the neonate resuscitation algorithm. And okay, so we hand it to the paramedic students and we say, okay, good, make sure you memorize these steps, memorize these processes. So what do they do? They go and they, re they regurgitate, they, they memorize the list of steps and they imprint it into a very short term memory. And, uh, and by Friday of that week, let's say, they can recall it and maybe they're good enough at recall to write it down on a quiz and they can pass the quiz. And maybe even they're going to have a, a, a neonate resuscitation class on Saturday. They can come back on Saturday and they can repeat that. But they're only using a very, a, a very um, a forward facing part of their brain. They're using the short term memory, right? They're, they're using declarative memory, which is very simple. And it's, um, uh, it's the, a, not a well-worn path. So the problem is they're going to remember it for the test. They're going to remember it maybe for Saturday. But if you put them two weeks out or even two months out or worse, two years out, they're not going to remember any of that stuff. 
Now, also couple that with, now they're going to be in front of a mom screaming, uh, a baby that's in their arms that's lying limp and flaccid under this enormous amount of stress. And all of that capability, the cognitive load, as a, a guy named Sweller talks about, the cognitive load capability is shrunk under that stress. So they just simply don't have the brain space to be able to do it anymore. And that recall is going to fail. Now, what we want them to be able to do, and when we use a better science of learning, is we can imprint that in a little bit stronger. We can imprint that in a little bit more into what's called procedural or long-term memory. And if we can use some of the techniques we're going to talk about, what they'll have is a, an ability, and they may, they may lose a little bit, don't get me wrong, if you're two years out of paramedic class, it's not going to be like the day after you learned it, but they're going to have a, a better capability to use it. And by the fact that it's imprinted in a procedural memory, it's not going to be subject to the same challenges of short-term memory and the stress factor that, that they're dealing with. That gets us really, I think you've actually touched a little bit into number three now, which is quality which you say yeah. long lasting learning is more than active learning and active learning, as you said, is a little bit of a buzzword. It came out. Um, I had an active learning manual that I put out in the nineties for EMS trying, you know, before, you know, flipped classrooms and stuff were cool. And we recognize that more dynamic things help, but I think there's a few things that you want to tell us. Um, I think we have some misconceptions about what's, dynamic and active and what works. Yeah. And, and let me be clear. I'm not against active learning. I think active learning is really important. But the problem is that that the term active learning has sort of become a lot of different things. And it certainly is a cliche in the world of EMS education. And you and I both abhor the cliche, right? You know that we want this to be more than just a buzzword that you use. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of EMS educators will, will consider themselves using active learning, but really what they're doing is just sort of videotaping themselves, giving a lecture and asking their students to watch a video on YouTube. Now, um, that's learning, but it's not really active learning. And uh, I think when we start talking about this kind of stuff, if we really want to imprint to that long-term memory, if we really want them to have that procedural capability around this kind of stuff, we've got to move past just the notion that they're going to sit passively and listen to a lecture, or they're going to sit passively and read a text. Now, I'm not against reading either, but they've got to engage their brain. They've got to engage a little bit of a different place the, the, to do this sort of thing. We've got to um, move them away from just simply being able to recite that skill sheet or recite that algorithm but we've got to make them use that knowledge. We've got to make them be able to take that information that's in their brain and put it to a purposeful use. That's the core, and that's really what needs to happen under the circumstance. And again, we're talking in this podcast to both educators and students, and both have a role in this. The educators need to set up experiences and plan for things that are going to get more into that better learning and, in, and engagement. But students also should be listening to this saying, all right, well, how do I do this so I can be the best I can be? Right. Because yeah. there's a student responsibility in this as well. It, there sure is. And I'm going to tell you something. It's really hard because doing it passively is the easy way. Right. Students want to recite. Students want to cram at the last minute. Students want this to be a single time where they have to worry about it and then put it out of their brain. I get it. You know, I've been a student. I've been to lots of classes and done it myself. But the fact is what they really want is a certain degree of difficulty. If they really want this to be usable, they've got to put a certain amount of effort behind it and engage in these more active processes if they, if they want it to be ready. 
So you have some uh, different examples uh, here of, of things, including uh, games and you know some other stuff. You've talked about what active, uh, what what quality learning is. Do you have some? Do you have the the good, the bad, and the ugly here? You want to put out, I guess, in this part. Yeah, well, so I, I guess I would say that ugly is anything that's passive, right? Anything that doesn't require a student to engage their brain in some kind of a recall or retrieval process. If all they have to do is repeat, if all they have to do is use a declarative memory, you know, declarative memory is like the, the very basic flashcards that you remember for a second and then you put them back down again. Um, what we really need are, are, are and we're going to talk about this in more in a, in a couple minutes, we need three core elements. We need retrieval, we need spacing, and we need interleaving, which means we're gonna mix it up a little bit, we're gonna change some context around it a little bit, but most importantly, what we need them to do is use their brain to, 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 to engage. We need, we need them to, to find out why they need that information, to, to pull that information out from the back reaches and use it in a meaningful way. That's what we want. All right, so we're ready to go on to number four, do you think here? Yeah. All right desirable difficulty because i have right. to tell you if we think that active learning is a challenging thing to talk about difficulty is one that certainly has its pitfalls as well yeah um, and i think that that uh that the concept of difficulty is often misunderstood and also we come to students and educators we might look at those things a little bit differently yeah and it's really what we've been talking about dan that the, the idea of difficulty is not about complexity and it's not necessarily about like punishing students with super hard assignments or things like that. But the point is, if the student doesn't have to exert any effort to get the information, if he doesn't have to exert any information to learn the information, then that information is going to be perishable and he's going to lose that information. Conversely, the more effort he has to put forth, the more challenge there is to, to learn that information, the more steps they have to go to, the more opportunities they have to retrieve that information, the more lasting it is, and the more capable he's going to be able to use that information under difficult circumstances. That's really what we mean. Now, it doesn't mean that a paramedic class has to be the baton death march, right? I mean, it's uh, there are ways to do this in, 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 in a a relatively simple way, but to simply mean, but, but, but at the same time, turn it around so that the onus is on the student to work hard and to do the job they need to do. And we'll talk about that more in a second. What would you say to the educator who's listening to this right now and says, you know, gee, Dan and, and Dan, I get what you're talking about now, but I don't think my students would put in this effort. Yeah. Right? You know, in the old, in the old flip classroom, the argument was, well, people aren't going to do the work outside the classroom. You know, how do we, how do we, get educators to to do these things. I've always said, you know, you really can't let them see a sweat. You have to set the expectation and people will rise to it or not. Um, and even for the students, the importance of this and learning to go out and truly be uh, an EMT or an AEMT or a medic does require this type of engagement in these difficult concepts. Yeah. I mean, so I, I wholly agree with you. And I think that, um, First and foremost, you set the expectation. As an educator, you say, this is what I expect. And if that's, if you're consistent with that expectation and if you've started it from the beginning and they know nothing different from that, then that's what they're going to they're gonna rise to. So I, I firmly believe that's true. But I also would suggest that, um, again, difficulty isn't necessarily complexity and that 
the steps, this is, this is more about programming methodology than it is about making it hard, right? It's about uh, changing the style of, you can just sit back and listen to me lecture, but on the other hand, you have to actually engage and talk to your fellow students and work through scenarios and work through problems. And I think what you'll find is that um, it's not necessarily something that's, that's um, distasteful or unpleasant for a student. If you think of the average student coming into a classroom, nobody wants to sit and listen to a lecture for three and a half hours. I mean, even the most engaged of us are going to fall asleep. We're going to be thinking about something else that's in the classroom. We're going to be doing. We know there's research behind it that says students want to be engaged in the classroom. They want to work through problems. They want to talk. They want to use resources. They want to, um, uh, you know, the, the modern uh, profile of a student is an iPhone in front of them and a iPad on their desk and a laptop that's there. I think if we can program that kind of methodology so they're using facts and they're working through challenges and they're they're engaging their brain, that's a that's a much faster day than the old school blah, blah, blah lecture for three and a half hours. And I think if that's what you've set as the standard right from day one, especially if they, you know, if you're talking about an EMT student who doesn't know any different from that, they're going to have been in class and be like, wow, that was fun. So it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily something that all students are going to reject summarily. I mean, look, I would also suggest that it's not your job to make students happy. It's your job to make them prepared and pass the class. And uh, it's not always going to be something that is congruent with one another, right? I mean, if they hate your guts but pass the exam and become a good paramedic, well, I, I think you've done your job. I think there's a middle ground. I don't think it has to be that extreme. But, um, you know, sometimes I think we do kind of weight ourselves too much on, well, we've got to make sure they're comfortable. We've got to make sure they're happy. I don't think that's really our job at the end of the day. All right. I, I look at your next one, talking about recall. And we're linking now desirable difficulty back in here and that this difficulty is best found by making students engage prior learning, not just spitting it out, but really using it. And I got to tell you, I found students that um, can't link basic pathophysiology to patient presentation. I have students who have trouble uh, left and right heart failure and vital signs patterns. I look at this and thinking, how can I use this concept to get them to apply this, to engage their prior learning, um, to do it. I'm thinking about things in my recent classes that I want to make better. And I see some of that in here. Yeah. Well, first I would say start simple, right? That this doesn't have to be, in fact, what we don't want to do is make this so complex that they push it away. Sometimes this is just about pulling information that was at their fingertips relatively recently. We, when we talk about examples, you know, some, Things as simple as maybe at the end of the at the end of the lesson, let's say you're going to talk for a little while, you're going to do a half hour lesson. Take a blank sheet of paper and have them write down the core components of uh, of your of your talk. Right? You know, what are the three main uh, points that I made here today? And just have them write them down. Right? That act of bringing it back up, right? Of of engaging memory that they have from a previous experience. That's actually going to contribute to the success here. Now. I would suggest, and we're going to talk about spacing in a minute, but that it really needs to go on, right? You can't just be in that moment in time. But something as simple as that, something as simple as a as a, a data dump at the end of the day, or a, a, a turn to your partner and, and, and ask your partner what the, the the key element of this lecture is, or the key element of this lesson, 
all that's really going to be helpful. So it doesn't have to be super hard. It doesn't have to be super complex. But I also think you're absolutely on the right path, right? What we want their brains to do, and especially when we think about the level of manipulation, right? You know, if you think about the the um, uh, the levels of learning that the National Registry is employing when they're thinking about their testing, it's more than just the res- the resuscitation, the the, the, res- the re- repetition of facts. It's about the ability to use those facts. So the notion that they can link it to something else is really important here. So you might put a question out that says, um, you know, how does our discussion on the anatomy of the liver relate to fluid balance in the body? You know, I know that may not be an EMT student question, but something along those lines. How does the um, uh, how does the uh, the our discussion around um, tendons relate to the ability to walk? You know, things like that. I think any of those capabilities to make them engage information from prior learning is really important, and that's going to imprint it in their brain. Wow. I like it. Um, I guess that uh, that take – well, i got one more thing I have to yeah, say. There's, yeah, there's one other point that I wanted to make here, Dan, and that's that when we talk about recall and we talk about making them engage, we've got to remember that this is, a, this is about learning and not necessarily about assessment. And that a lot of educators will want to pull this in and say, well, we ask them to recall all kinds of stuff in the quizzes. But remember that this recall and, and making them engage information is more than just filling out a quiz sheet. And in fact, what we really want to do is separate it from the quiz process because we want to, we want them to live in sort of a, 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 a world where it's okay not to have the answer right away, right? That part of this um, process is, is realizing that sometimes it is hard, right? And sometimes it is challenging to have uh, the right information. You may not know how this relates to the pathophysiology that you were discussing yesterday. What we want them to be able to do is go, you know, geez, I don't know, Dan, but uh, I'm going to go look that up, right? That's the world. So so it, when we separate it from assessment, right, when they don't know something in an assessment, what we say is, sorry, you fail. In this particular case, in this learning methodology that we're putting forward, what we want them to say is, yeah, I don't know, but I'm going to look it up. I'm going to use the resources around me. I'm going to engage the world like a real quality provider would to say, I don't know, but there's plenty of resources out there that can teach me how to do this kind of stuff. In one of the books that I was, that I mentioned before, um, they talked about, uh, there's an example uh, that she used. She would say uh, she was a, a social studies teacher. And on the first day of class, at the end of class, she would walk around to students and say, can you tell me who Lady Murasaki Shikubu is? Right. And, and apparently uh, this is a, a, a historic Japanese figure and nobody knew who it was. Right. Her point wasn't that anybody would actually know who this historic Japanese figure is, but rather that they would understand that it's OK not to know. The lesson she was trying to put out was, yeah, I know you don't know, but we're going to teach you how to do this. Right. And, and not knowing everything is not necessarily a flaw. It's human nature. So what we want you to do, though, is be able to look it up. And it's sort of like a challenge that she was throwing out there to say, uh, you know, now they're going to come back into class tomorrow and they're going to know who it is. And, and there's some powerful lessons in there. It's about building a growth mindset, right? That, you know, the, the difference between the, there's a uh, Carol Dweck wrote an interesting book on growth mindset a couple of years ago. She talks about this notion that there are people out there who believe sort of that God gives them the traits that they need. And that's the only traits they're ever going to have. And um, when they compare themselves to other people, they say, well, if I don't have that trait, I'm, I'm just going to have to pretend I have it. 
What we really want is the other side. We want people with a growth mindset who say, um, I can learn more stuff, right? That I'm not going to be a good EMT on the first day of class. But if I work hard, if I study hard, if I use my resources, if I engage in the techniques that my instructor told me, I'm going to be better. And, and ultimately, when they leave the class, that's the mindset that we want to have. So not having an answer is not the worst thing in the world. There's plenty of situations as a paramedic in my career. I don't know the answer to that question. But what I have around me are good resources. I have good people. I have other capabilities. And uh, and I'm going to learn. I'm going to get better. And every time that I don't know an answer, I'm going to go look it up. That's the, that's the lesson that we want to engage in here. I think that many times when we look to improve, we look for techniques. But what I hear you say, you use the word mindset. I'd probably say attitude is probably yeah. as important or more important than some technique we're going to employ in the classroom. We have to have a mindset that, well, if we go back to number one, that you know we've kind of been doing it wrong for a while, and that 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 mindset of trying things new and uh, the thing that you say, we need to separate the penalty of assessment failure from a learning activity. It's okay to fail. That's a that's a pretty strong statement. It's something that. A lot of people wouldn't think of as being acceptable in the classroom. Yeah. You know, again, I think there is a point where they have to be assessed. And I'm not saying throw out all your quizzes and tests. I think that's a piece of this. But there's a difference between the learning methodology that we're talking about. You know, the other piece is what we're building in this growth mindset. When we give them that confidence that it's okay, we're actually, there's actually research to demonstrate that this is actually helping them with test anxiety. If they get to a place where they realize that, um, not having an answer all the time isn't making you an abject failure. It's not making you a less than person. Um, they're going to feel more comfortable engaging that information. They're going to feel more comfortable trying and reaching harder and reaching farther. And there's actually research that points to the notion that that actually reduces test anxiety. So by engaging this on a daily basis, by by creating this attitude in the in the classroom of, hey, I'm going to try, maybe I'm going to fail, but I'm going to get better, I'm going to learn more. If I don't have the answer, I'm going to look it up, I'm going to find it. That's actually going to prepare them better for that test. And because they're better prepared for the test, they're going to do better on the assessment. So uh, I think there's some real value in this kind of stuff. Hi, awesome. Number six, spacing and interleaving. Yeah, so this is really the core strategy, right? So we've talked about the idea that what we want them doing is retrieving information, right? That this is about engaging information that's in there, right? Recalling and, 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 and reaching back into that portion of their brain that they can pull it out and carving the path through. But the real strategies are beyond just making them recall. It's about spacing and interleaving. Now, spacing means time, right? And the notion behind spacing is basically what we want them to do is forget stuff, at least for a period of time. Because the more they forget, the harder it is for them to recall. And the harder it is for them to recall, the more they're going to imprint that path of learning. So what instead of having a single day, and I'll, and I'll go back to the neonate resuscitation piece, instead of having a single day where we only talk about neonate resuscitation once, what we need to do is talk about it once, space it out a little bit. And again, depending upon what you're doing, it might be spacing it out for a day, two days, 10 days, a month, you know, again, depending upon your class uh, profile and setup schedule. Um, what, what's going to happen is that information is going to erode a little bit. They're going to forget some of those assessment steps. They're going to forget some of the steps of the algorithm. But if on that next day or the, you know, two weeks later, we make them recall it again, it's going to be harder and they're going to have to think about it. And they're going to go, oh, shoot, I forgot. I don't know whether I'm supposed to check a heart rate here. 
but then they're going to engage it. They're going to pull it back from that recess that they've lost. And that process is going to imprint that pathway. So the more times that we can do that through a, a spaced period of time, the more strong that information is going to be there and the more likely it's going to be available under those difficult circumstances. We've talked about this kind of from an educator standpoint. Let's switch to the student. If a student was studying, whether they're studying for a test, uh, whether they're studying for the big call, whether they're, uh, no matter what they're doing, how would they use this concept? How would you tell a student to use the things we've talked about now uh, and even have an educator encourage this to prepare? How yeah. does the spacing work from the student side? There's a really terrific technique, and it's been validated in a lot of different research. It's called the Pomodoro Technique. And the Pomodoro Technique basically says that we only have so much attention that we can put to anything in a period of time. And, and in fact, the, the, the folks that, that began this process said it's really a 25-minute window that you have. So let's say I'm, I'm going to get ready for this National Registry exam. First of all, uh, cramming and studying for four and a half hours in a single stretch without a break isn't giving you any benefit after about 25 minutes. So stop doing that, right? So think of it in, in short bursts. Then you take a break and then you do another short burst. Then you take a break. What they'll say in the Pomodoro technique is you should only repeat this by about four times before you really need a long and meaningful break. Now, you can also look at this in sort of a macro idea. So in other words, if we really want to prepare for the registry properly, and this is something that I missed as an educator. And again, this is one of the reasons why I want to apologize to my students is that what we want is um, short bursts with high degrees of frequency but with spacing in between them. So if I had a student that was getting for the, ready for the registry or getting ready for a, a you know, high stakes exam in class, what we want them to do is take advantage of as much of that time that they have and do these repetitive little techniques of recall and studying over a longer period of time with space in between them. So instead of staying up the whole night before the exam, cramming and rereading your textbook and going over things over and over again without break, what we really want them to do is take that week before the exam and say, all right, on Monday morning for 25 minutes, I'm going to study. And then I'm going to study again on Monday evening for 25 minutes. And then on Tuesday morning for 25 minutes. And then on Wednesday. And, and ideally, what's happened in that process, if they do this enough times, they're touching the material more than once. So it's not just uh, it's not just recall. It's, it's, it's not just resuscitate. Um, they're not just repeating information over and over again, but they're gathering and they're grabbing it and pulling it back. And that's the core. That's the key thing that we need. That spacing is enabling them to catch it again on the background. So you talk about um, the concept of uh, cramming feels easier and also uh, context. There's a few other things in here, I think, to do. Repetition from learning is one that looks good, too. Yeah. Well, so the second piece, besides spacing, right? So... Spacing is, is an important element, but we also want to change context. Now, this is really challenging because we've got to balance this. The registry uses a term called entry-level competent, right? And entry-level competent is very much based upon context, right? It's very much based upon you're able to do this, but under only a, a certain set of very specific uh, situations, right? I mean, historically, it's meant that we teach the trauma assessment station exactly the same way and exactly the same kind of, you know, when they, we were doing practical exams in, in robust fashion, we'd always have them come into a room and there'd always be a person laying on the ground and they kind of just do the same thing over and over again. But that's not real trauma assessment. And if you really want them to be ready to take care of that person in a car, you've got to add some context to it. 
So if we want to imprint the learning in the best way, yes, okay, you've got to teach them in that sort of contextual way. They've got to learn it in, in, in at least a, a couple of editions in a similar fashion. But then as they've begun to uh, grasp the concepts, we need to begin to change it a little bit. So maybe the first two scenarios they do are very similar. But the third one changes a little bit. Maybe the person's sitting up. Maybe he's awake. Maybe it's a, a, a kid. Maybe it's something a little bit different where they've got to engage just a little bit of a different technique to go through there. The more times that we can change that context, that's a principle called interleaving, by the way, the more times that we can change that context, the stronger it's going to imprint in their brain. It's hard, right? And the students are going to go, oh, it's not fair. But the reality is they're learning it in a more firm way. All right. I love it. I love it. Well, this uh, gets us to uh, number seven, um, which is uh, practical application. This is this is your looks like your how to part. Um, and there's some things for instructors. I like talk about some educators and you're certainly talking the limmer uh, words when you talk about test prep. You also have down well, here. So. Yeah. I mean, but first of all, you know, independently of, of any relationship I have with you, I've always been a fan of the work that you've done around these apps because I think it really is an important. And your apps do represent a really important element to, to, to how to engage students in, in good practice and good retrieval. But uh, in terms of, of this, it doesn't always have to be limited to just apps. There's a lot of other things that we can do. And when I think about sort of the techniques that we've been talking about, there's some real practical things we do. We, we, you know, we talked a little bit about some of these, but like if you're an instructor, you might say, Dan, how do I, how do I add recall into my lesson plans? Well, we've kind of talked about some of that stuff. Maybe it's an opportunity at the end of the day to have the students jot down a few notes of the, of the core elements that they've learned today. Maybe uh, there's a technique called bell work where before you can leave, the bell goes off, you know, the idea of the, of the school bell before you leave, you've got to be able to uh, pass a, a not pass a, to 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 answer five questions about the learning today, right? So uh, it's more than they've just uh, sat through the class and listened or that. Now they're actually engaging, so they're they're leaving the class, and you've said. Um, so you were talking before about pathophysiology. You know, you might give them five questions about pathophysiology before they leave the class, and okay, maybe they get one or two right, maybe they get one or two wrong, but now the, the, the homework is, okay, if you've got any wrong, you got to go back and look it up. Um, there's lots of other pieces as well, you know, the think, pair, share is another good one too. So maybe the lesson ends and you pair a student up with his, his, uh, the person sitting next to him and you say, okay, uh, I need you to quiz the other person to, to, uh, on some of the topics that we've discussed today. There's lots of, of simple ways that we can do that. The other piece that we think about, you know, and, and, and I was a paramedic instructor, so I think a lot about the clinical environment, but it might be as an EMT scenario. Uh, I love the notion of, of creating like cue cards and, and specific questions that my, my adjunct faculty can use. So, for example, if a student is uh, going through a scenario and they're using some of the information, like, you know, for example, a trauma assessment, you might give a faculty member a cue card that says, at some point during that scenario, stop them and ask the student, what exactly you're doing? Can you describe it to me precisely? So now there's, we're adding a level of metacognition on top of the act. So maybe they're, they're palpating the chest and you know, going through a chest exam. Now they have to do a quick timeout and that's the, the uh, instructor is asking them, tell me what you're doing and tell me why you're doing it, right? What's, what's, the, what's the reason why you're doing it? Now all of a sudden they've gone from, I'm just gonna regurgitate this algorithm 
to, holy crap, I need to actually be able to explain why I'm doing it. Well, that's a higher level of learning and that's a much more meaningful experience for the student. You know, also things like, uh, especially when you get into the paramedic students that have much more complex outcomes, like, you know, when you give a medication or you are doing some procedure, um, why are you doing this and what is it, how does it fit within the solution that you're trying to get to? We had great experience when I was teaching paramedic classes by simply stopping the students saying, what are you trying to do? And a lot of times they'd say, well, you know, the algorithm said, no, that's not what we asked you. The asked you is what's the outcome that you're looking for here? Again, it's that metacognition, making them engage in, in, in a higher level of thinking about what it is I'm trying to get to here, right? It's not just about regurgitating the algorithm. Neonate resuscitation isn't about the ability to recall the nine steps or however many steps of the assessment. It's about the ability to assess the neonate to decide what the next action step is, right? That's what we want them to be able to do. And that's what's going to give them that capability years from now if you do it right. I think it would even help them. I know that the have practical exams largely going away. But boy, if we could get them to really think about what they're doing, how many people fail practical exams because they just don't think? You know, the concept of that, you know, just to have them really aware of why and what the outcome is predicting to be able to look down the road. And what are my actions now going to do for me later is ultimately choreography and and what the people that we like to work with do. Well, it's also just common sense, too, right? You know, we're we're going through this exercise in Vermont, Dan, where we're we're moving to a portfolio based capability to assess students. And the whole basic understanding is you as an instructor is, has a, a much deeper insight into the student's capabilities over 16 weeks of an EMT course than I do as a test evaluator for 16 minutes, right? You have the capability to get to that level of, uh, of, of understanding with the student. You can see how their brain works if you're doing this properly. If you're engaging in some of these activities and steps to be able to say, hold on, time out for a second. What are you trying to do? What are you trying to think about here? Tell me what your brain is, is what direction you're going in. That's the, that can only be done in a classroom. That can only be done with a quality educator. It's never going to be replicated in a test situation. So you talk about how an average instructor can add some of these things. Um, I like some of the things you see here. Less talk, uh, more do certainly makes sense. A couple other ones here I think are probably worth talking about. Uh, I'd like to hear what they are. Yeah. So, you know, in addition to just recall, and, and don't get me wrong, that metacognition and recall is, is really important piece, but we want to add other layers to it as well. And the other things that we can think about, and as I, as you said, less talk, more do is really important. We want students doing stuff. We want them engaged. We want them working. Now, again, you got to be careful though, right? Because just the fact that they're moving around doesn't mean they're actually learning anything. There's a, a great podcast that I liked called The Cult of Pedagogy. Uh, and there's a podcast called... Uh, is your classroom a Grecian urn? And, uh, you know, she talks about this experience she had where the lesson, the intent of a student that she was working with, a student teacher, was to teach, uh, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks, Greek culture. And the student teacher was having everybody make a Grecian urn using paper mache and balloons. And she said, look, I appreciate that this is an active lesson, that you're, you're, you're making a Grecian urn, but are you really teaching them anything about ancient Greece, the culture of ancient Greece? And the student teacher was kind of stopped in his tracks and said, oh, well, not really. Yeah, the lesson was active, but it wasn't really a lesson in ancient Greece. Greek culture is active in making paper mache. So, you know, 
I think that's what we want to be thinking about is getting students up and moving around and doing these active lessons and scenarios are good, but we still want to make sure that we're using these core principles of engagement and using the information that's out there. A couple of other things that we want to be thinking about, though, is, and again, it's it's more than just doing scenarios. I think there's a lot of other things that we can think about just in terms of how we engage these, this learning process. There's a process called concept attainment that I really like. Um, you know, we, we have a way of sort of like giving students lists, but sometimes it's really helpful to flip that around and say, hey, you make the list. So, for example, if you're teaching um, like bradycardias, you might give them uh, uh, five rhythm strips without teaching them any lessons prior to this and say, hey, you tell me what these strips have in common. So as a group, they maybe get in there and say, okay, well, this one has P waves and this one doesn't have P waves and this one has a long PR interval. And now they're grouping them together and all of a sudden their brain is creating categories of what this means. They don't know that this one's a block and this one's a sinus bradycardia, but just by engaging the core concepts they're seeing in front of them, the, the common traits they're seeing in front of them, they can gather those linkages up and, and, and begin to sort of process this. Now, of course, you're going to teach on the back end of that and help them get to that place. But that ability for them to learn it their way is a, is a really powerful step. There's lots of other stuff here as well. You know, the, the notion of mixing things up in scenarios. Um, you've been always a champion of, of, of thinking less about a linear process. You know, who said we have to teach everything in a linear way? Well, it turns out that the research really demonstrates that not teaching in a linear way is pretty powerful, that, you know, maybe um, pediatrics can be taught every single day, you know, instead of instead of making it a single day and making um, neonate resuscitation its own day. Maybe as we're doing trauma assessment, we throw a kid in there and make them engage that pediatric learning a little bit earlier and throw them out of context a little bit and make them have to learn that piece there as well. That's all really powerful stuff. And there's lots of other stuff too. You know, I, I think that when we talk about this kind of stuff, what we really want to remember is that everything is cumulative, that there's not like, um, that there's not a time when we say, okay, you don't have to worry about neonate resuscitation anymore. And the ability for you to bring that up again over time and using that spacing technique, you know, you've got to learn this stuff. You've got to have it ready. And if you're not ready, you've got to learn it again. And you've got to recall it back again to the place where you can use it out there. That's pretty important. You know, I always think about like the notion of like throwback Thursday is a, is a cool thing. So maybe on Thursday, if you're meeting, you're going to have a day where we're going to talk about topics that we've already talked about. We're going to go back and gather stuff up just so that they're always prepared for having, again, everything is new again, right? So they're going to be able to go back and say, well, neonate resuscitation might come up on Thursday or it might be, um, you know, something I learned on the first day of class, but uh, it's all going to be germane to my lesson. It's all going to be something that I have to have in my brain. All right. We're technically at time now at about 45 minutes. However, there's a possibility of a bonus number eight here, and I just can't let it go. I right now, I've thought about my class. I've thought about things I want to do. My mind has been churning here. I know I have to pay attention, but I, I've, it's, it's certainly uh, got me thinking about a lot of uh, things for my next classes. And I want students to think about how this you know, applies to them. Uh, what's the bonus thing? What's your bonus? Yeah, the bonus is, is, is the value of feedback in all of this, right? And that ultimately, the, one of the most important things that you can do with a student is to offer them that feedback and offer them. And again, in this moment of, of, of retrieval, in this moment of performance, you know, the engaged process, what we want them to have is the coaching that tells them they're doing it right or doing it wrong. 
And that ability to give them that feedback is, is going to make them metacognate. It's going to make them think about their thinking. That's the very process that we talked about with our, our preceptors or with our adjunct faculty making them stop. But the more that we can give them the feedback to say, ah, that's not right, or here's how to do it a little bit differently, or here's how to get better at that, is going to make their brains engage to a, an even higher degree, a higher level of learning. And that's oftentimes really important. The challenge is a lot of these students don't know the difference between whether they have something in working memory or they're just sort of memorizing it. Um, and your ability to give them that feedback is going to differentiate the two. The example that people use all the time is that a lot of times we think we know stuff, but we hardly ever do. In fact, if you asked 100 people what the capital of Australia is, you'd probably get an answer of Sydney or you know some other really common city, but it's not, right? Um, uh, when we think about that, what we want them to be able to do is engage the actual ca capital of Australia. And when they learn that, when they realize, oh, it's not Sydney, I always thought it was Sydney. They're getting this moment, right? The hypercorrection effect they're getting. And when they do that, it, they sort of go, oh, they have this aha moment. And that aha moment is really lasting learning. So in other words, when we go back and we make them do these like throwback Thursdays and we say, hey, um, you know, tell me the, the, the third step in a neonate resuscitation. And they've got, they go, oh, I don't know. Or they thought they knew, but they were wrong. When you correct them and say, oh, well, it's actually this. And they go, oh, that's a powerful learning moment. And it also makes them think about how they were thinking. All right. This is, like I said, my brain is churning now. And I think this has been uh, awesome. At the end of these episodes, I always give people a chance um, for a parting shot. Uh, a last thing to say. We remember our primacy and recency. We have a chance now at the end to leave a parting shot. If you wanted to leave advice for a student or educator, any learner, um, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think I think my parting shot here would be that nobody should be intimidated by this, whether you're an educator or a student, right? That this is not necessarily about about a massive degree of difficulty. It's not something that you can't do that the ability to, to integrate this, these learning concepts, the science of learning into your classroom is really simple. The ability to integrate these concepts as a student is just a matter of creating a discipline that gets you to a place where you're using the proper techniques. None of it is really hard. None of it is something that's daunting. And certainly the, the yield that you get from it is far greater than any of the techniques that you've used in the past. So I, I think just keep that in mind. I think that's a great finish. Dan Batesy, uh, educator extraordinaire, even though you may be uh, in state government now as the director of emergency preparedness, response, and injury prevention, I can tell your heart is that of an educator and that the books you read and the things you say will be very motivational to students and educators out there. Uh, and I'm very glad we're able to have this talk today. Dan, thanks very much for having me. It's really uh, uh, awesome to, to hang out with you again. Thank you for listening to another Limer Education Continuing Education podcast. For more podcasts that are relevant to your practice of EMS, limereducation.com slash seven things.